everyone. My name is Dr. Margie Luisius, and I will be your host and moderator for this second episode of the podcast. So as you all know, during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, our country had a reckoning with our underlying structural racism through the racial disparities that were magnified with COVID and also the killings of unarmed Black Americans. And this national conversation finally ignited honest and real conversations within academic medicine. And I think for those of us who are underrepresented minorities or URIM, and for those of us who are doing disparities research, we finally found an opportunity to engage in discussions with people who are actually now receptive to learning and understanding, and even an opportunity to motivate people to hear and take the call to action about dealing with these underlying issues that have been literally present since the birth of our country. And so to that end, I want to introduce our topic where we'll be focusing on developing a health disparities research career. And the goals of the podcast are mainly twofold, practical advice for aspiring and current disparities researchers. And secondly, how can you do effective, innovative disparities research that moves the needle towards equity and justice? And with that, I'll introduce our three discussants and give a little bit of background about myself as well. So I have Dr. Obi Emerowa, a pulmonary and critical care medicine fellow and PhD student in the Department of Health Policy and Management and Biodesign Innovation Fellow at UCLA. Dr. Isaretta Riley, Assistant Professor in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at Duke University. Dr. Sande Okello, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and the Division Chief in Pediatric Pulmonology and Sleep Medicine at UCLA. And myself, Dr. Margie Luisius, Instructor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Director of Diversity and Inclusion in the Division of Allergy and Cl Clinical Immunology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So for each of my discussants, can you please give me some background about your disparities-related work? And let's start with Dr. Emerowa. Hi, so my name is Dr. Emerowa. Um, I'm a third-year fellow. I'm currently pursuing a PhD in health policy and management, and I'm interested in implementation of um, new innovations and new research in, across different communities. Um, and so uh, my PhD focus is really that, um, look how uh, to, to implement what we find in academia in the places that can benefit from it most. Hi everyone, I am Dr. Isaretta Riley. I am a pulmonary health disparities researcher and implementation scientist who designs and implements interventions to improve health outcomes in race and ethnicity, in race and ethnic minorities and low income populations with lung disease. And Dr. Okello. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm focused on, uh, or my research is focused on developing interventions to circumnavigate physician bias in the processes of delivering asthma care uh, with the ultimate goal of improving care and outcomes for minority populations. Thank you, everyone. And for myself, my work focuses on investigating the role of the school as a safety net to reduce disparities in pediatric asthma. We're super excited to have you guys. Thank you for making time uh, to have this talk. So with that, let's go into our first topic. Um, and with this, we're gonna be talking about the challenges of developing a uh, research career in disparities. Our first question is really thinking about what do you think is important to developing the health disparities researcher? And Dr. Okello, maybe you could start and kick us off with this. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Um, I think uh, one consideration is the type of disparities uh, work you're interested in doing. 
Um, I tend to think of uh, there being two groups, if you will, of disparities researchers. Uh, one is those who conduct their research primarily in, in a minority uh, populations, which tend to be underserved and uh, experience worse care and poor outcomes. Um, another group are, are those who focus more on the mechanisms of bias, uh, develop strategies to overcome those biases that are experienced by more minority populations. So, you know, one consideration is to think about, well, what type of uh, research am I interested in? Um, and then obviously to seek out uh, people who are doing that type of work for, for mentorship. Yeah, I, I agree with Dr. Okello uh, that it's really important to uh, seek out the people who could be potential mentors, especially for those of us who are, you know, embarking on different stages of our training or, you know, coming out of our training programs and looking to start um, early careers as faculty. Uh, from my perspective, as I reflect on my own training, the one of the most important things that was helpful for me was asking who was doing the kind of research that I was interested in when I was interviewing for both residency and fellowship. And in some instances, uh, I've actually found mentorship outside of my current institution, which has helped complement the mentorship I've received from my institution. I agree with both of you. Um, I think that becoming a health disparities researcher is very similar to becoming any type of researcher in that you first, you have to identify your area of research. For example, asthma or COPD. Then identify the type or types of methods you would like to employ. For example, biobehavioral research, health services research, epigenetics, or translational research. All of these different areas can, um, can be used in health disparities research. Lastly, you should identify mentors that provide these necessary expertise. Sometimes you will find a primary mentor with expertise in your content and your methodologic area. Other times, as in my case, I had to find mentorship within and outside of my division to provide adequate mentorship. I have a pulmonary mentor who specializes in asthma, and then I also have a health disparities researcher who's actually a general internist who um, studies chronic kidney disease, um, and, she, and she provides my methodologic expertise. So definitely, I mean, I think that's the piggyback or for you, Dr. Riley, I, myself, I'm in a similar situation where I have this, you know, co-mentorship model where I have someone with the, with the allergy asthma expertise and I have someone with the implementation science expertise. So a lot of times for, you know, for, um, for us in this area of research, you're going to have to, you know, really go outside, you know, your division or your institution really to get that that mentoring team that's going to give you the guidance that you want, which which again can have some some pros and some cons. So what do you what are your thoughts on, you know, the the, you know, what we can sometimes call like, you know, being the token researcher. So specifically like that bias that we we face as minority investigators, um, you know, at the institutional level or even thinking about grant funding mechanisms. Dr. Riley, any thoughts on that? Yes. I think it is hard not to be typecast solely as a health disparities researcher. So I actually recommend diversifying your research portfolio. At times, I introduce myself as a health disparities researcher, or other times I emphasize that I am a medication adherence researcher or an implementation scientist. This versatility allows me to work on a wide breadth of projects while emphasizing the skill set needed for each project. And I guess you do that depending on which context may be that you're in, conference, you know, that you're at or things like that. Exactly. Dr. Rapello, any thoughts on that? Um, absolutely. 
in a way, I think there are two levels or, or two responses to your question. I think one is um, uh, maybe uh, uh, stereotyping uh, because of the subject matter that, that you investigate or that you research, particularly in terms of bias. Um, but I, I think as a, as a minority, uh, regardless of your research topic, I think there's a certain level of bias that you're going to encounter. Uh, so I, I think in either situation, it, it ultimately is, is truly trying to be uh, thoughtful and investigative about identifying the uh, environments in which you can thrive in, uh, in which you're, you're less subject to uh, some of these biases as a minority investigator uh, and or as an investigator of uh, uh, racial disparities in, in healthcare. Yeah, I agree with everything that Dr. Kell and Dr. Riley have said so far. One thing that I think is important, especially for trainees to note, is that as you establish yourself in your training career, um, you may encounter assumptions about your own research interests um, purely from your identity as a minority. Um, and this uh, can be beneficial points, and sometimes it might actually steer uh, steer you in the wrong direction um, because of other people's assumptions. And so it's important to really clearly state your interest every meeting uh, with people in your leadership, um, your division leadership or your department leadership and potential collaborators so that people know what your interests are and know how disparities research fits into that. Um, so it doesn't become um, all consuming in your, in your sort of you know, academic identity. Well, I think that's a great point. And I, I think this leads us to, um, really just the, the nuances of being a, a minority investigator, um, particularly doing disparities research. There was a, actually a paper that came up um, that was published in Science Advances actually uh, in 2019 that investigated the factors associated with lower R01 funding rates for black applicants. And they, they actually found that topic choice was a significant determinant of, of that gap and accounted for 20% of that funding gap. And so I think, you know, what, what that ended up, that study showed was really looking at the, you know, what black applicants are likely applying for, um, like what was leading to those, to those funding gaps. And so they found that, you know, black applicants tend to be studying disparities work or doing patient-centric research instead of mechanistic studies, for example. And, and unfortunately, like, again, a lot of what we do, you know, of our, our work is tied into our personal identity and what we've gone through. And so hence why we tend to do this type of work. But at the same time, this could be, you know, have a negative impact uh, on our career trajectory, um, particularly when you think about something like R one, which is really critical towards becoming an independent investigator. So it's, it's definitely tough. Dr. Okello, I mean, maybe you could go a little bit more into, you know, those the nuances of being a minority investigator and just that, you know, additional impact on that, on the researcher, researcher's career. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, again, I know this comes up as a, as a recurrent theme because I think it's so critical. I think finding those mentors who will support your uh, subject matter interests and will uh, provide the environment for you to grow and thrive in. So particularly in the earlier stages, you know, uh, will, they, will there be people to provide the resources to help your development? Uh, so uh, there are minority uh, faculty supplements that your mentors can apply to, which are, are primarily administrative. So they, they should be given fairly, you know, readily. Um, to provide the protected time that you'll need as a, a junior investigator to, to further develop your interests. 
Uh, I think uh, also uh, seeking people probably beyond your institution uh, for mentorship. It depends where you're at. There may be a number of people there, but you know, particularly in the area of, of healthcare disparities, there tend not to be a, a, a large concentration of those types of investigators at any given institution. So um, uh, networking, I, I think, is important. And uh, trying to meet people through professional societies, whether it's ATS or another professional society you, you work in. Uh, but as you've already alluded to, it is, it is a tougher road, uh, funding-wise, publication-wise, uh, promotion-wise. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, we tend to choose what we feel kind of most motivated and passionate by. So it's, it's kind of being aware of, of what you're stepping into. I agree. Um, life as a minority investigator can be isolating. We know that at many institutions, regardless of research focus, you know, the experience of a minority in- investigator um, includes the standard stresses of clinical research. That one, um, In addition, you have to deal with microaggressions, bias, and also sometimes not being viewed as a legitimate researcher, especially those who focus on health disparities research and not basic or translational research. I would recommend finding a research home within your institution. For example, at Duke, we have this Reach Equity Health Disparity Center, and there a lot of the researchers are interested in health disparities research. We also have the Minority Retention and Recruitment Committee. So in that um, organization, we have a home for those, whether you're a clinician, a researcher, a, uh, a educator. Um, and so you're able to find colleagues that you can connect with on a research professional and a personal level to help navigate you through your career. Now, that's awesome you have that at Duke because you can imagine something that you, something like that, what you have is pretty unique and would definitely not be found at many institutions. Moving on to our, our next question, what do you guys think is needed for us to, to move the needle in health disparities research? I, I think really, and this has been touched on already slightly, um, is, is funding, more funding. Uh, more NIH funding. Uh, we know the National Institute of Minority Health Disparities is, is, is the smallest, least well-funded uh, institute. Uh, funding for that, but also funding for disparities work uh, throughout all the institutes of the NIH uh, could be significantly increased. Um, foundations and universities uh, can also put their money where their mouth is, honestly, and uh, provide more funding. Uh, that's what's needed, and that will attract more people as well to this to this area. So, um, to me, I think that's that's the single biggest uh, factor that could move the needle forward as far as health disparities research. Well, I think that many junior investigators also start by identifying the problem. However, we already know that health disparities exist in almost all content area, whether the data is out there or not. The field of health disparities research is actually now focusing on potential solutions. So while the original focus was on, you know, patient provider level intervention, there is now a trend towards addressing social determinants of health and structural and systemic racism. We find that we can often improve health management, such as, you know, asthma disease, you know, diabetes management. But then when you account for the social determinants of health and structural racism, these are the important factors that are actually impeding the achievement of health equity. So I think, you know, people who are going into health disparities research or are already in the field should really start transitioning to kind of these newer areas of social determinants of health, structural and systemic racism. 
Yes, I agree with all of that. I think this uh, broader framework of, of disparities research is really uh, important in terms of helping people realize its value. Um, from the trainee perspective, as we all know, one of the things that really motivates career development is um, as how to get published and how to be recognized. And in that vein, leadership on editorial boards of major journals that are interested in research that highlights disparities, I think, is really important. Um, again, from the trainee perspective, a lot of us come in with varying um, interests, and we've seen how those interests are molded or sometimes even um, completely displaced um, by the need to meet certain um, career milestones. And so putting incentives in that will help align these milestones with the overall goal of, of recognizing disparities research, I think, is really important. Yeah, I just wanted to add, if I, I can. Uh, despite the apparent kind of recognition or awakening, if you will, that's occurred over the last year, the burden still so far has fallen significantly and almost exclusively on the shoulders of, of minority professionals, investigators. So when we talk about moving the needle forward, we need other people to actually get involved, become uh, more knowledgeable about the presence and the history of disparities. And when I say disparities, I'm talking about biased care delivered by physicians and other members of the healthcare system. This is not to disregard other factors uh, where bias crops up, you know, social determinants of health. But really, if we're to look within our societies, our professions and ourselves, I'm talking about those types of biases. So the NIH asthma guidelines just came out after a 13-year hiatus, I forgot how long it was. There's not one section in there about racial bias. I don't think any of the versions of the NIH asthma guidelines have a section on racial bias. So when will that happen? When will any of the guidelines talk about racial bias in healthcare delivery? So, you know, in terms of moving the needle forward, there are other people who need to step up and start incorporating that into their work, into their products and deliverables. I think that's a definitely a, a great point because the, the burden, as you mentioned, is, is again, is usually on the people that are being oppressed. And, you know, what hopefully this, the, the last several months has revealed to people that is not going to be the oppressed who make the changes. It's the people who are in leadership and unfortunately the people who tend to not be oppressed. And you think about the people, for example, who wrote those guidelines, you know, you know, again, they're the ones that have that opportunity creating, like, you know, the, the gold standard of treatment for asthma to really say, hey, like, we should include this. And if they're not including it and they're not, if, that, if, that, if that's not on their mind, then unfortunately, you know, it's not going to be distributed and included. And I think, you know, just to, to add to the end in terms of, you know, moving the needle in the in the impact of bias and how that's not even brought up. I mean, I had the opportunity to, you know, you know, help write a, a article looking at you know implicit bias. And that's actually an area that's really understudied. I mean, obviously structural racism and that impact obviously has to be addressed too. But I think specifically in the role of bias and looking at the, its impact on health outcomes, you could you could um um, theorize and, uh, um, and do a hypothesis and say likely it does, but there actually is, you know, not that much research. But, you know, you think about the role of just bias and the way you offer, for example, certain asthma treatments, you know, or biologics, for example, you know, that perhaps there may be some areas that you want to, to look into that there. So now let's, let's think about, you know, what can we provide our listeners on um, 
perspectives, you know, at different stages of our career. Because again, you know, with, with each of you guys, you know, you guys are different, different stages. And so could you just, each of you just give me some, give, give, give the, the listeners some takeaway messages regarding perspectives and, and, and specific challenges that you have that they could use to um, move themselves forward? Yes. Um, so uh, I think for people who are early in their academic career, like I am, consider using research training um, within your specialty to highlight the, the inequities and inequalities of our healthcare system. Um, for me, I'm like I mentioned, I'm uh, in a PhD program in the health policy and management department here at UCLA, and my PhD training has been invaluable to um, my development as a researcher in in terms of um, you know methodologies to really understand how you know things that seem very nebulous like structural racism truly impact outcomes. And uh, I'm not sure, honestly, that I I would really be able to tackle some of these interests without this kind of training. And so mentorship is great, but there are there are some concrete things that you can do if you feel, you know, that you're not prepared for this um, for this career, um, master's programs, PhD programs, you know, even if they're not degree granting programs, there are sort of one-off classes that you can take um, to help uh, give yourself the tools to move forward. Yeah, I agree. Um... I definitely obtained my master's in public health during a postdoc. I also retained a certificate in implementation science. And so definitely obtaining these extra skills to learn how to do health disparities research well is very, very important. To do research well in general is very important. In addition, I think it's very important to develop a mentorship, advisory, and sponsorship committee. And again, these three terms are actually quite different. And some of your mentors will be your advisors and sponsor, but sometimes you'll have a sponsor who's really not your mentor. And these people will help you develop your research portfolio, identify career opportunities, and help you navigate difficult discussions and or conflicts that you that will come up throughout your career. Um, and also this team will be fluid. So some people will be more active earlier in career and then new people will be added as you go on. I think those are all great points. Um, you know, from uh purely academic standpoint, you know, the, the transitions one, you know, classically would go through would be to get their career development award and then uh, successfully complete that and make the transition to, uh, you know, more independent funding, our, our type of awards. But, uh, you know, I, I think that that transition is a challenge for, I think, many people. Um, but I, I think it is particularly challenging if your work is focused, you know, on, on healthcare disparities. So, you know, I, I think uh, at this stage, you know, the thoughts are, what are the different strategies to utilize to still accomplish the same goal? And, you know, I think, frankly, at times, it's a discussion of whether to present a different topic, and then gaining support or funding for that topic, and then using that those resources uh, as an additional means of also uh, investigating disparities. I, I, I think that at this stage, you do appreciate how extensive the bias is against this type of, of research. Um, the opportunities, I think, are few and far between. And I think it does take some real strategizing about how to move forward at, uh, at a certain level. So again, it, it circles back to uh, the environment, um, your uh, mentors, uh, having people help you navigate those, uh, you know, uh, those processes. 
um, just to uh, sort of complement everything that's been said about, you know, the perspectives and uh, challenges about developing a disparities research career, I think it's important to note that disparities research really is for everyone in the sense that disparities are ubiquitous in medicine. Um, if you're a health services researcher, especially, it's, it's, it's impossible really to ask a question about our healthcare system and expect that the answer does not vary by race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, and other factors. And so even if your primary interest is not the disparity itself, it you know, really is frankly irresponsible in, in this day and age to not acknowledge that they exist. And you know, even if you're doing basic science research, if you're doing translational, if you're doing clinical trials, um, there are disparities in all of these aspects of medicine, and um, it's really it's really the responsibility of all of us to acknowledge them and, and to um, raise awareness about them when we can. I completely agree. I think everyone has an obligation to conduct health disparities research and to collaborate with experts to make sure that it's done correctly. I think it's a missed opportunity when researchers spend large sums of money on clinical trials and the study is not powered to assess for differences in outcomes by race and ethnicity or gender. We know how disparities exist in most pulmonary allergy and critical care conditions. So it's important to understand how new discoveries may differentially affect different demographic groups. And I think this is, you guys bring up great points. And I think this would be a, a good question um, to ask because I'm sure people are probably thinking about this. You know, what would your advice be for the researchers who are not doing disparities research? You know, because there's going to be people who are saying, well, that's not my thing. I'm not interested in it. But I, I do want to, you know, make my research less biased, you know. Um, and so what would your advice be? I mean, particularly maybe around like participant recruitment. So one thing that I've really come to appreciate is that you can only you can only find um, what you're looking for. And so it's really important when you're starting to think about questions to ask, to think about the participants who are going to help you ask that question or to think about the uh, pieces of data um, that are going to help you answer that question. And really, you want to look for participants and data sets that represent a diverse population um, where possible and applicable. Um, otherwise, uh, it's very difficult to really ask questions about disparities. Uh, we've seen a number of large data sets that when you look in retrospect were overwhelmingly um, exclusive of minorities, um, and yet the findings from those data sets have been uh, incorporated into guidelines. Um, this, you know, this kind of research uh, can't really persist going forward um, when we know that we can we can build data sets and and patient pools that are more representative. You know, I, I would add that at most academic institutions, there are resources available if people do want to collaborate with people doing disparities work, if they would like to they themselves learn more about um, healthcare disparities. I think those resources are there. So it does come down to whether the individual is interested in seeking that out or not, seeking out that information. And then there is educating oneself more broadly, just on a more societal and a historical level. I think medicine is no different than any other profession. Um, we are uh, subject to you know, what goes on in, in the larger culture. And that, that is brought to work um, every day. Um, and so uh, if someone is interested in incorporating uh, more um, awareness and understanding of, of bias, the implications of bias in their work, 
I, I think there are the avenues and the resources are there for them to to seek them out. Um, it's a, a matter of their their interest and and exploring. And I would say, you know, in the ideal scenario, um, that that is an ongoing journey. Um, that's not um, a one-time thing, a two-time thing, a three-time thing, but that that is, you know, effectively for the rest of their their career. Definitely agree with you. I feel like, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of momentum that's been started with everything. And and I've gotten a sense that people want to do things now and 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 that's it. It will burn out. But like you said, it has to be part of a real long-term journey regarding um, change. And, and just to piggyback off of the, the two of you, I think some uh, two great resources that I found recently in this area that I've offered to people when they when they ask, you know, um, about, you know, hey, I want to, you know, try to make some changes in my own work and I don't, you know, I don't know where to start. There was, um, and perhaps we can get this in the, in the show notes, one article published by um, Dr. Boyd and some and colleagues in um, health affairs actually, you know, um, proposed some standards for publishing and racial disparities. And uh, specifically, specifically pointing out things like, you know, making sure that, you know, researchers, you know, and reviewers, for example, look out for, you know, um, you know, papers that are highlighting, you know, biolog biological uh, connections with race, for example. So it's, that's a quite, uh, quite a good resource. And then a second resource that I found was um, actually at the Brigham um, called the MRCT. Um, basically, it's a, a center that has webinars and also toolkits on how to increase diversity in clinical trials. And, and there's everything from like participant recruitment to study site selection. And it really gives um, PIs essentially, you know, toolkits and, you know, and that are really practical, honestly, on how to, you know, partner with, you know, even stakeholders um, and to do, um, to, to have, you know, more diverse samples and participants in their studies. So again, like you stated, there's resources if you, if you want to, to find them, they're, they're, they're out there. So moving on, let's think about, um, you know, just really about the, the grants again, because I think like you stated, you know, for, for everyone, grants are going to be, you know, difficult to get. You know, we know it's a very challenging, um, you know, area in terms of getting grant funding. Are there, are there any specific grant opportunities specifically for minority researchers um, that may be helpful in terms of a, a disparities research career? I have found great success in using the NIH diversity supplements. That's a great option. Um, and it's important to be creative with this opportunity. It's usually partnered with any um, senior level grant, like an R1, a U54, P grant. Um, and your research does not have to match it completely. It can um, just be related to the content or the population. So actually, it's important to be creative with these opportunities. I have also had personal success with internal career development awards at Duke. We have the CTSI, um, we have the KL2 program. Half of those awards are given to underrepresented race and ethnic minority, and the other half are open to anyone. Um, we also have some career development awards that are non-K awards through our Health Disparity Center um, at Duke. I've also had great success in having you know, small pilot funds um, from chess and ATS. So I, I, I think a lot of people need to um, think broadly and not just think about your K01s, your K23s, uh, but also think about these small grants. Um, I think a lot of these small grants is also important to note that some of them do not provide um, salary support and they usually provide um, funding for your research or vice versa. So it's important to negotiate for a solid startup package with discretionary support. Um, for your support staff. You know, if you're 
institution is really bringing you on and they want to invest in your success, then you need the protected time to actually develop the pilot awards, the um, pilot data to be successful for your career development awards. You also need to have the staff available um, to help you, you know, your research assistants, um, if you're doing basic science, your lab techs, your statisticians, right? Statisticians cost a lot of money. No one can really afford a statistician with a K, even the most prestigious career development award. You need the money and the support and the staffing and not just planning to share it with someone, but ideally, if you can, get the money in hand because sharing is always an elusive term. It could mean you're the last data to be analyzed and the people, the paying customers get it first. And so these are all important things to know. And again, if you have a really strong mentor, they'll help you come up with the things that you need to ask because you're new in this area. You don't necessarily know. So working with your mentor to identify the things that you're going to ask for when you're coming on to faculty so that you have the greatest chance to succeed. Now, all great points. And I, and for myself, the NIH loan repayment program has been critically important in supporting my research journey. I was funded, you know, um, about two years ago. My renewal was just recently funded. And I, and I think, you know, again, it's great to have that grant to actually pay your salary and to pay for, you know, the, the staff, but then to also have that uh, the money, this money is actually to pay off your loans, to take off your debt is, is critical. Because you can imagine that, you know, this academic journey, you know, to be real, you're getting, you know, <laughs> a lower salary compared to what you'd be doing if you did pure clinical medicine. And so, so this really definitely um, relieves some of that stress that goes along with, you know, choosing the academic pathway. So I think one of the last things I wanted to discuss with you guys was just, um, for the disparities researcher, you know, again, we're, we're talking in the context of this, you know, um, the reckoning, you know, that we're having in this country, but, you know, still, it may be difficult to, to do this. The work is still going to be difficult, you know, because you can imagine that there's going to be certain audiences or even colleagues or even the division or department that you're in where they, again, don't review this as important. And so what advice do you think you can give to, to researchers in this situation? Well, you know, I think at the end of the day, one does have to be passionate about what they're doing. It certainly doesn't preclude being practical about how you go about it. You know, we've touched on already uh, finding environments that are more supportive, that allow you to thrive. And, you know, I think broadly speaking, you know, that's that's what we should be seeking in general. You know, what are the conditions that, that allow us to be most uh, productive and successful and, and happy? And so I think uh, spending a lot of time thinking about that is, is, is worth it. Are, are the people there uh, to help you accomplish your goals? If you're in a setting where people just, they don't, they don't buy it, then there really is no point in sticking around. And I, I don't think it's worth trying to convince them. You know, now there are broader cultural challenges. Uh, I will say as a pediatric pulmonologist, that group is slower to come around to uh, being investigators of, of healthcare disparities, particularly in the area of bias in terms of uh, health services research. Um, so there are uh, cultural headwinds that, that one may encounter, yet and still there are always solutions around it. Uh, the American Thoracic Society, there's uh, the Behavioral Health Services uh, Research Assembly. Uh, where there are a number of people doing health services research, people are interested in, in, in healthcare disparities. So 
I think that's actually where I first met Izaretta was in that in that assembly. So uh, so being creative in, in terms of your problem solving. But, you know, if you're passionate about something and you believe in it, it's a matter of finding, well, what are the ways that I can accomplish this? And it may mean moving from where you are. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Okello. I, I, I think, you know, we're in an era of uh, big data where there's just so much information available about the factors that impact people's health uh, to the point that you, you almost have to make an active effort to avoid acknowledging the impact of disparities. Quite frankly, I think overlooking the role and impact of disparities in many aspects of medicine amounts to incomplete research. And uh, again, as, as academic physicians um, who are interested in, in you know, the accumulation of knowledge for the betterment of society, it, this, should, this should be clearly recognized um, when we and our peers go to publish. Uh, peer review exists for this reason, um, to make sure that people are doing um, good and complete science. And um, if that science isn't up to what the standards of 2020, 2021 um, uh, would suggest, then, then we need to sort of reject that science and move forward. Yeah, no, definitely. I think just to, to add, I mean, those are all great points. I mean, I think we have to think about the, for the people who you know are doing this work, when you're, if, if you're in a, let's say, for example, you're in a situation where you're giving this type of, you know, research talk and, you know, you're not, you want to necessarily want to motivate the, the group that you're into to this kind of air, to this area. A lot of times I use storytelling. Because I think that really allows people to kind of um, latch on to the idea and uses some empathy, honestly, to, to get the audience interested in what you're saying. And um, another thing that I, you know, utilize um, in the setting of just thinking, you know, if you're talking to basic science researchers or, you know, people doing translational work or clinical trial work, is just going back to the idea that good science is having participants and samples in a study population that's reflective of our actual population. You know, you think about the, the, the concepts of external validity, right? You know, so just really the idea is that good science is going to be, you know, reflective of the actual population. And then, um, and I think last, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, most of us who are passionate about this are looking you know, through, you know, for disparities work through the lens of like, you know, the goal of equity and justice. And we're, 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 we have this moral imperative, you know, behind this. And perhaps you may have literal skin in the game because we, you know, are coming from these black and brown communities, right? But unfortunately, there's going to be people who, who still will not care and, or choose to be purposely blind to the issues. And, and so what I've, I haven't actually had to use this, but sometimes you can think about adding to your work or your presentations really highlighting the economic impact of inequity or that you or the economic benefits of equity and you know and there's um from the kellogg foundation they actually talk about those the role of you know increasing purchasing power improving social cohesion etc and those things but you know again i mean i think at the end of the day you know you know like what has been noted before that if you're in a space where it's not supported um you know regardless of all these things you know it's not going to matter you really want to be in a in a in a institution, division, department, et cetera, where you can grow and has that space for you to feel welcome. So unfortunately, guys, now it's time to say goodbye to our listeners. You know, it was awesome having this discussion with you guys. Um, I mean, I think it was definitely hard 
to um, keep it short. We definitely wanted to speak more, <laughs> you know, um, but I to just to close out, I just wanted to just briefly summarize some of the things we discussed. We discussed, you know, factors for success in health disparities research, including some of the challenges one might face if you're a minority, for example, during this work, the issues of funding, also the type of research that is needed to make that critical change in disparities research. So again, you know, looking at the role of structural racism or the systemic racism in our society or the institutions, for example, also looking at, um, you know, research is centered on solutions, um, you know, to the problem as opposed to just describing, you know, um, the, the nature of the problem. We also gave some action items for our non-disparities non researcher colleagues, and then also how to frame um, disparities um, work for those audiences. So thanks again, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone.